0: Hello. Welcome to another issue of the Cool Tool Show and Tell. Our special guest this week is Jonathan Whitaker. Hey, Jonathan, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners and watchers?
1: Thanks, Kevin. Um, Hi, everyone. I'm Jonathan Whitaker. I'm an artificial intelligence researcher and consultant uh, based in Portland, Oregon.
0: Well, welcome, Jonathan. I'm really eager to hear what your favorite tools are. And um, can you tell us about your first pick?
1: Sure thing. Um, So I'll start with the one that's the most sort of like a a conventional tool. Um, So I have here a Ryobi cordless jigsaw. Uh, The exact model I have is, I think it's called the XJ50, but that might be an international version. And I think it's called something slightly different here in the US. Um, So this is a tool that I brought over from Um, where I used to live, Zimbabwe. And the reason I wanted to highlight it, even though I think a jigsaw is pretty well known, is just that um, in a place with no electricity most of the time and not a lot of resources, I found that the combination of like a, a jigsaw and a drill and especially a cordless jigsaw that doesn't need a wall outlet to run.
0: Is that what this is? This um, is a cordless uh can yeah. you hold that up so we can see the so
1: this is this is a cordless jigsaw jigsaw, it's based on Ryobi's, I think they call it the OnePlus 18 volt um okay. lithium battery system, right? And so we could charge those up from our solar panels and then just use it wherever we we needed. Um and so it comes in really handy. And I think I had this perception of a jigsaw as like a, a really rough, imprecise tool. I think I'd seen, you know, badly made jigsaw um puzzles and things like that um but yeah as soon as you start to use it you realize that if you've drawn your marks well and then if you've got a good eye you can you can get pretty precise and with a bit of sanding you can match something that might be like a a circular saw or a table saw job normally
0: um Uh so this yeah and 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 there are um a bunch of different coreless jigsaws did you do much comparative evaluations of of this one to choose it or is this sort of more like a generic thing just like a cordless jigsaw is there is your suggestion
1: so so there's a fair amount around um i do like this one obviously i mean part of the reason i bought it was just what was available yeah um but i think key things to look for so this has um it takes the the kind of universal jigsaw blades and so you can get blades for cutting metal or for cutting wood um more aggressive blades if you want to cut really fast. Um, so make sure that it, it takes the universal blades. And then also it's nice to have, um, so for the listeners I'll show, there's a there's a little dial on the side by where the blade is. Um, and that can switch it from a straight up and down cutting motion, which is really nice if you want like fine edges, not too much damage to the material. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can also switch into a mode where it moves in a kind of like an epileptic orbit. And that cuts away a lot more material at a time. So if you need to really move fast through, mm. you know, like a sheet of plywood that you're rough cutting, um, you can switch it onto the, the more aggressive mode and use a really rough jigsaw blade. Um, and between that, you
0: can cut through material um,
1: a lot a lot more fast.
0: So, I mean, I, th- I think what you seem to be saying is that th- this, in some ways, this cordless jigsaw could replace a lot of saws. Like it could replace, like if you need to cut a piece of plywood, you could put a straight edge and use this instead of your skill saw. You could use it instead of a bandsaw. You could use it, it, it kind of like if you're going to get one saw, maybe this is saw you want to get. Is that what you're saying? Yeah,
1: yeah, I think so, at least as a as a start. I mean, after a couple of years of using it, there's definitely places where I think, oh, I wish I did have the, the, the yeah. saw or whatever. Um, right. But yeah, we built a lot of furniture. You know, my wife and I built our own desks and chairs and some little box drums and things like that. Um, the other nice thing about it is that uh, even like a circular saw is pretty intimidating. I used to like help my friends and and family, you know, build stuff Um, and you hand someone a circular saw, you need to prepare them. It's, it feels really dangerous. Like it's going to run away and cut someone's leg off. Um, Somehow the jigsaw feels a little bit more controllable, even though there's still this kind of scary blade. um, It's never going to run away with you.
0: Yeah, that's, that is true. So um, this is the Ryobi One Plus, is that right?
1: Yeah, that's correct.
0: And it looks like it's fifty one dollars right now on Amazon, which is a great bargain. Because that does not include the battery. Um, yeah. But that's a pretty good deal for your one and only saw. Well, sure. And you can often find, um, like, some places
1: will have a starter kit that has like the the tool itself and the battery on on a, on a discount. And um, but yeah, around fifty bucks for the tool itself. Um, and then if you enter that system, like I have the jigsaw and the drill, and then a friend has the the cordless angle grinder as well. Um, you can have you know one or two batteries and swap them out. And yeah. it's very convenient to be able to switch in something that's fully
0: charged. Right. A cordless angle grinder is something I wished I had 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It's the second yeah. most useful thing I've ever. <laughs> it's pretty magical, yeah. Yeah, it can cut anything. Including I was doing it to cut a uh, stone, um, you know, patio stone. It's really yeah.
1: um and like up on a roof or something you don't want to be running cords up the ladder and then along yeah so that's a game changer as well
0: um okay well that's a great start so um jonathan what's the excuse me what's your second pick
1: um so my second pick kind of sprang out of a pandemic hobby i think like many of us i was locked down and looking for things to do and so what I ended up getting really interested in was spiders, um, just digging around my yard and trying to figure out what um, species of spider were there. And to kind of enable that, you often need some magnification because these things are quite tiny. Um, So what I have here is called a Raynox DCR 250 macro adapter. And for the listeners, this is like, it looks kind of like a magnifying glass with a frame that has some spring-loaded clips that let you clip it onto the front of a camera lens. So okay. this is not- um, So, so, so a you're holding, yeah, holding up something
0: yeah. that, that snaps onto the front of like a camera, like an SRL kind of camera, old-fashioned camera that goes onto the front yeah. that's an additional magnifier to the lens that the camera has.
1: Exactly. And so normally this is where you would clip like a an ND filter or an extra protective layer. Um, so it's it's compatible with a lot of cameras. I think if you've got anything from like a 50 to a 65 millimeter filter ring, um, you can clip this on, and you can buy adapters for larger things. Um, But the reason that's so useful is that, I mean, it has a bit of magnification itself. You can get some that have even less. Um, But if you pair it with a lens that already has some zoom, the trick is that it lets you focus on things that are really close by. So for example, my camera is just a point and shoot um, sort of bridge camera. There's no interchangeable lenses. Um, But if I zoom in to full zoom, Normally that has to be you know six feet, eight feet, ten feet away at the nearest focus. Um, whereas with this, I can clip the little macro adapter on, and suddenly something that's you know ten centimeters away or twenty centimeters away, I can focus on that. Um, and so that combination of a zoom lens with this thing that lets it focus close by, um, it's kind of shocking how good the uh, macro capabilities are, um, and it's a lot cheaper than going to like a dedicated macro lens.
0: Right. So. Presumably they have um different versions of this for different cameras. You have a Lumix super zoom, which this fits on, and presumably there would be alternatives if you had, you know, I don't know if the current alternatives are as a Sony or or whatever. Um does that is that right? Or does so one actually, does one fit everything?
1: It's it's pretty much one size
0: fits all. If you have a a massive
1: lens, like a a giant, you know wildlife lens or something, then the filter ring would be like a hundred millimeter filter and it wouldn't fit, but Mm -hmm. I'd say almost every camera and lens that's just in the general like mid-range hobby use, because it's sort of spring loaded, it just clips into whatever rim you've got. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's it's very universal. And then even if it's a smaller lens, the insides um, you can unscrew and you've got a 43 millimeter Mm -hmm. um, sort of, it's another standard mounting. So between the different like adapters that you can buy, um, the actual lens itself is, is almost universal.
0: Okay. And it looks like it's about $70. And um the idea is is that um you could get really close. So so how like inch away? How close could you actually get?
1: Um you can't get like an inch away. I'd say probably about six inches is the minimum. Okay. So maybe about 12. Okay. Um but within that, it also depends on what your base camera lens is. So if you okay. have a Um, like a high zoom lens, maybe it's a little further away or a little closer depending on your optics, Um, but it's definitely much more workable than something that's, you know, you have to be two meters away from the subject.
0: But can you also, if you have a zoom, can you also retreat the zoom to make it more of a standard or normal and use it, does it also use it and allow you to be closer if you have the setting much more like a wide angle lens?
1: Yeah. Um, so my camera goes down to the equivalent of like a 20 millimeter lens. Yeah. Um, and at that super wide angle, the Raynox does have a bit of a vignette. Okay. Um, but in the center, you can get really close and you can get some really nice, almost like fisheye um, macro of, yeah, okay. some some larger insect or something. Um, so I can share my screen to show a bit of the, just what the magnification is. Um, obviously it's variable. So this is like a, a honeybee for the listeners. Wow. It's really great. Out.
0: Yeah. So yeah. we're seeing a profile of a honeybee on some purple flowers and it's very crisp, very, um, intimate, very close. Uh, it looks like it's maybe, I don't know, four inches away. That's what it feels like.
1: Yeah. And the, the bee takes about maybe half the field of view. So this is yeah. at actually quite a wide angle on the base camera. Okay. Um, and then if you zoom in, um, so this is, this is a shot that I took just to illustrate what the the kind of, um, higher zoom levels look like uh, so this is the tip of a ballpoint pen um, oh, no. and from the the like base where the final nib pokes out to the end of the ballpoint where the actual ball is is, is most of the height of the image um, and there's a tiny little spider whose body is about the size of the actual ball and the rollerball pen Yeah, and yeah. Um, wow, you can that's... see all the detail
0: yeah um, which... so the, yeah the, the ball point pen it looks like it's like a fire hydrant it's it's you know it's really substantial and incredibly close so that's more than just six inches away that's like an inch away
1: yeah so this it effectively becomes like a microscope um like a like a really high magnification microscope um which is i think one of the reasons why this macro photography got so exciting for me is because things that you would otherwise just say it's a little speck right the spiders maybe two millimeters across um when you zoom that up to fill the frame you suddenly realize that there's all this detail and color and nuance. Mm. Um, now, I will say um, with a lens like this, at, at that high of a magnification, the focal um, very plane- Very shallow focal is Very, very shallow. Um, if you use it with a, a smaller sensor camera, like mine doesn't have a full frame camera, a full frame sensor, it's just the smaller APS-C. Yeah. You do get a bit more depth of field, but it's still like any slight motion of your hand, um, it, you've maybe got like a millimeter of depth between yeah. you know being out of focus. So you have to probably use a flash to freeze the motion. You can do things like focus stacking to get more of the image over multiple passes. Um, But it's much easier to use if you use like a slightly wider angle lens, less zoom, um, and then it's really nice.
0: So um, does this contraption also fit onto a prime lens, a fixed lens, if you had those? Would that also work on those?
1: Yes. So you lose the ability to go in and out, but it does, it does give you that closer focus and that increased magnification. So yeah. I know people use them with like a hundred millimeter lens and they add this on the front. Um, and for like macro shots of flowers and things like that, you get some incredible photos.
0: Yeah. Well, that's really great. One size fits all, um, magnifier, mag, uh, you know, macro magnifier. That's really cool. And that's called the Raynox DCR-250 Super Macro Snap-on lens.
1: They have the Raynox 150 as well. So if you have a a lens with a lot of zoom and it's too much extra magnification, you can get one that just does the bringing the focus closer.
0: Okay. That's pretty cool. Okay, Jonathan, what's what's the third tool that you'd hate to lose? (laughs) So moving from... uh, spider photography to music,
1: um, another pandemic hobby. I have the, uh, this is the Roly Seaboard Rise. Um, so what I'm holding up, it looks like a keyboard layout, right? Like a, like a 49 key piano keyboard. But the entire surface is this sort of squishy neoprene rubber texture, okay. continuous surface.
0: Yeah, um, so it's about two feet
1: and So this long. is an instrument that's...
0: It's about two feet long. It's maybe just an inch thick. Yeah, um, It looks like, yeah, kind of like a keyboard, an extended keyboard, but very thin.
1: Very thin, um, but surprisingly heavy, which is why I put it back down. Um, uh-huh. It really feels like a beefy premium piece oh, of equipment.
0: Instead of having um, these these distinct keys, it has this rubber membrane. And what's the advantage of that? So with a normal
1: piano, you're limited to these discrete notes. And some of them have a little pitch wheel or something on the side that you can use to bend, but it's very unintuitive. Whereas with the seaboard, because it's this continuous playing surface, it registers touch and pressure, um, and it uses a standard called MPE, which is a MIDI polyphonic expression, so that you can use those movements and that nuance to control the sound. So, for example, I can play a note, and then I can just slide it down to a lower note, and it's because it's a continuous surface and it's tracking that touch, you can just control that pitch as much as you'd like. Um, And so if you'd like to be very expressive, like emulating a cello, you can wiggle your finger to do some vibrato. You can push harder to get a more aggressive sound. Um, So it's designed to be a lot more of an expressive musical instrument versus just a piano, which is kind of on and off, maybe how hard you hit it.
0: Okay. So there's more nuance in the pressure and the relation between the pressure and the, and the sound. Yeah. And, um, And is this for composing music as a performance or for both?
1: Um, I'd say for both. If you watch their promotional videos, which are all excellent, you'll get the idea that you can straight away jump on and shred a a guitar lick and switch to pretending to be a saxophone Mm. jazz player. Um, What you have to realize is that the people playing those are really skilled. It it does have a bit of a learning curve as an instrument. Mm. Um, For me, what I found it's most suited for is, um, I guess you call it like sound design. Right, I'm less focused on a perfect performance of a piano piece. It's mm-hmm. more about like when I play a chord, between their software and this expressive control that you have, you can really just get layers upon layers of different like nuance and expression within just a couple of notes that are being held, but they're moving slightly. They're pulsing as you shift up the keyboard. It changes to like a bit more overtones. Um, yeah, so I know a lot of film film scores and um, like sound designers use it as a way to just explore sound. Um, and to automate that in a way that you can't do with just a, you know, a standard MIDI input.
0: And again, this is called a seaboard, right? Rise?
1: Seaboard yes. Rise 2. So Roly have had a long history of making instruments like this. They kind of uh-huh. created the genre in, in a sense. Um, so they had the original seaboard, I think they called it the Seaboard Grand and the Seaboard Rise. Um, And so they've been iterating on that since Um, they do have some smaller versions, which are a little bit cheaper and more accessible. Um, But this is their latest product. And it's kind of, I think the best, you know, in the middle of their range, does everything you'd want. You're not going to feel the limits, unlike the smaller ones.
0: And it's like, it's um, $1,400. And it's sort of, does it... In your eyes, does it replace your normal keyboard? Is it that versatile that it, or, or do you also have a regular keyboards as well? Is it supplemental so, or does it replace?
1: Um, I would say it's supplemental. If you get this as your only instrument and then you try and play piano songs, mm-hmm. I think you will find it's it's different enough. Um, so, so I think some people get disappointed by that. Oh, I can't play this as well as I can play my piano. Um, You really have to treat it as a different instrument. It's like like a separate category. Um, So, yeah, I have a a standard MIDI keyboard now as well. Um, Mm -hmm. But this is, yeah, it's its own thing. Um, It's it's way more money than I've ever paid for any other instrument. I'm usually like the make it out of PVC for free (laughs) end of the spectrum of musicians. Mm -hmm. Um, So this really felt like, okay, but um, if you realize that this is its own sort of unique instrument, it's got a lot of software that comes bundled. Mm. Um, And yeah, it sort of sits supplementary. Maybe if you're a musician who's already got some other gadgets, this is a a really nice addition.
0: Okay. That's really great. So Jonathan, um, we're on to your fourth tool. Um, Tell us about that one.
1: Cool. So um, maybe I'll share my screen again. My fourth tool is, this is a, um, a software tool. So switching away from physical things. Uh, It has a free version. It's basically just a website, um, and it's a product called Google Colab. So if you go to colab.research.google.com, what you get is a way of writing software that I think is a really nice break from the traditional method. So normally when you write software, you'd write a bunch of source code in one or more files, and you'd finish writing the, the code, and then you'd run the file, or maybe you have to compile it and then run it, and then see the output somewhere separate. Um, whereas what a notebook does, um, and so this is called a Jupyter notebook.
0: Wait, wait, wait! So, 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 you, so mm-hmm. um, a notebook is the unit that you get in a collab. So yes. Um, so, so collab is the is that a variety? Is that a brand name? Are there more than one collabs? Does Google have one, and someone else doesn't, or is Google is that a Google thing?
1: So, so I'd say the class of things is like a notebook notebook editors. Okay. Um, just like you have text editors. So this is a way of editing this kind of code document. and, and, and notebook, Google collab, it,
0: and a notebook oh, yeah? is the new thing that 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 is the genre is the notebook.
1: Yeah. so so you have one notebook that you're editing and that's like a document. And this is like the Google Docs of these code environments.
0: okay and and but but the the class of them is called notebooks. Yes, so right. like Jupyter
1: Jupiter Notebook is the underlying technology.
0: Okay. Um,
1: and the reason I love it is that you have, you can have um, text and images and markdown formulas interleaved with code. And when you run it, you, you don't run the whole thing at once. You're running a section at a time and you're seeing the intermediate outputs right there in the notebook alongside the code and the explanation. Um, and so as a teaching tool, these are pretty invaluable because you can say, you know, we've we've done a few steps. Let's look at what this output looks like. We can plot a graph of it. We can play with it. Then you read the next section that's explaining what you're going to do next. You visualize something. Um, you have the output right there. Um, and so it's kind of a, I call it exploratory programming. Um, it's much less like write once, run once, and then see the outputs. It's much more interacting with the data. Um, it's used a lot for machine learning. So you have a model, you test it out, you change something, you test it again. Um, and yeah, as a, as a learning tool to be able to give someone that experience where they have everything together and they can tweak it and edit it. Um, Mm. yeah, it's a very powerful technology.
0: So you you mentioned teaching and then you mentioned machine learning. So it sounds like it's good for students and it's good for professional like yourself. Um, why aren't more people using it? Or um, what's the disadvantages to it?
1: So it is it is taking off. I think there's a lot of resistance to changing how you edit software because software developers are always very opinionated about their setups. And we all have our favorite editors and extensions and so on. Um, so it's, its usage is definitely growing. Um, and I think especially in like educational environments or Um, So one of the places I've seen this explode is in the AI art scene. You know, you have all these people tinkering and generating images and so on with um, these models. Um, The other other difficulty with doing that the traditional way is that you have to download everything onto your computer. You have to get all of the environment set up such that you have, you know, the right programming language installed and the right models downloaded. Um, So Google Colab, in addition to being like the notebook editor, it also runs a computer in the cloud that all the code runs on and so you have this like standardized environment where i can say look i wrote it so that it runs in colab that means anyone can run it and they'll have the same environment in the back end right. the same compute power
0: so 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 you don't have to load instance of of that onto your computer you can use the hosted version that the notebook has and exactly. it will be the, same one that everybody else is sharing the same version, I guess as well.
1: Yeah. Um, there are different tiers. Like you can have uh, a larger graphics card if you need to do more advanced, like deep mm-hmm. learning or something. And so then they have a, a, a pay-as-you-go credit system or you can have mm-hmm. a subscription. Um, so you can get you know more or less powerful computers behind the scenes. Um, but yeah, for just basic exploration or learning, it's free and, and everyone can access the same platform.
0: So the, the you know that's really cool but one of the other kind of trends in coding right now that everybody seems to be using is things like Copilot where you are using the AI to help you write the code does this integrate with with those AI tools as well those AI scripting tools So it's funny you mentioned that I'd recently shifted
1: away from Google Colab back to my local notebooks simply for that uh, Copilot AI assistant but Google have just integrated their own code assistant back into CoLab. And so now if you're unsure how to do something, it has, you know, the little cell where you'd normally write your code, it has a generate with AI button. And instead of writing the code, you can say, you know, display the image and resize it to 500 Mm -hmm. pixels and it'll write the code for you. It's not perfect, but it's a a nice little assistant.
0: AI. Um, So it sounds like this would be a really great place for someone learning how to code, like say you wanted to do web development, um, this would be a, would you recommend a, a, that the person begin here with the, with a the notebook?
1: Um, so it depends on the task. If you were doing web development, there's similar online systems where you have an easy setup environment and you can run the code like Replit is the one I'd recommend for. Which for one more. It's called what? It's called Replit, R-E-P-L-I-T. Oh, Replit.
0: Okay, yeah. Yeah,
1: um, so Colab is mostly focused on Python Um, And it's really designed around the Python ecosystem and especially for like machine learning. So if you were coming to learn machine learning, I'd say go straight to CoLab, run some notebooks, see some examples from people. Mm -hmm. Um, For something like web development, there are similar tools, but um, this isn't oriented around that kind of ecosystem.
0: And just so I understand, because I'm not a coder, does that mean you cannot use, you know, Whatever it is, Java in 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 this notebook that only does Python, or or that it's not suited for. What, what do you mean by by this preference? So um, behind
1: the scenes, there's a whole computer running. So you can, in theory, get other things going, like all the normal Linux tools, or you could run a web server and serve JavaScript. Mm-hmm. But it's not um, optimized for that. The the notebook, as its sort of default, is. Um, is designed for specifically writing Python code and interacting with it. And so all of the Copilot, all of the um, user interface and the kind of defaults is that Mm. the expectation is you're writing Python code and you're interacting with that. They do have an R version. Um, Other notebooks can run Julia and a few other languages. Um, but the, okay. the, the assumed focus is that you're writing Python right.
0: code. So, so right now, there's kind of a bias to language. So, you can have different language notebooks, basically, what it comes down to. Yeah. To first approximation. Okay. So, um, and this is, is there a free version for the Google collab? Yes. So,
1: originally, when it launched, it was free for everyone, and you could always access the GPU which for many of my colleagues um, back in Zimbabwe, that was the only access we had to kind of accelerated computing for deep learning. Um, So it still remains free and you can access a lower tier graphics Mm -hmm. um, unit in the free tier. Um, But because of the popularity and everyone using it to generate their pictures of their dog or whatever, um, they've limited access to the more powerful GPUs to the paid tier. Um, but I'd say you can definitely start on the free one and only if you find, oh, I'm really hitting the limits of what I can do on the free mm-hmm. one, or I really want to run things for longer, run more experiments mm-hmm. overnight. That's when you would upgrade to the pro subscription or the the pro plus.
0: Um, right. Okay. Yeah. That sounds pretty um, standard. So, um. So that's great. Yeah. And then Replit is the one that you might want to seek out, a notebook version you might want to seek out if you're doing more traditional, not traditional, but, you know, kind of basic web stuff, JavaScript. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So so Replit's also lovely. I mean, I could I could just as easily have put that as, as one of my picks because it also has, you know, it sets up the environment for you. It has there they call it Ghostwriter, the AI assistant mm-hmm. that's really powerful. Um, and so there you have, you know, you edit your code, you see your web page or whatever straight away, and they support a whole bunch of different languages. Um, so it's slightly different focus, but um, yeah, also a really lovely tool.
0: Okay, well, great. Well, the general tool then is um, a notebook um, environment for, for for writing code. So thank you for those. That's really great. Um, so Jonathan, we have a couple of minutes available. Would you like to... Share with us any kind of um, project that you're working on or cause that you would like to champion, um, something you'd like to personally recommend.
1: Um, So I don't have any specific um, personal project that I can push, although people are interested. I'm trying to work on my YouTube channel and get more educational content out. So you can follow me on Twitter or whatever if you'd like to find that.
0: Well, tell tell Um, us a little bit about what your YouTube channel covers.
1: Uh, so <laughs> whatever I'm interested in, in at the moment tends to overflow into YouTube videos. Um, and so for a while, that was the image generating type of deep learning model, yeah. shifting over into the language space now. Um, language. Look look a large language be, model. Yes. Yeah. So some large yeah. language model stuff. I'll do some um, 3D graphics stuff in the coming mm-hmm. months.
0: Um, uh, do you, are you are these tutorials, or, or are they just more of a showcase of your project? Is these kind of a maker thing? What? Give me a little bit more of a sense of.
1: Yeah, the, these would be um, tutorials, very very deep and technical. So I would say probably not um, applicable to to most most people. But if you're really into machine learning and you want to do some deep dives, that's a good place. Um, but if I had to plug something, I'd say more generally, like it's a really fun time to be getting into coding and deep learning, and so. Even if you're not interested in like the really deep um, code applications, try out some of these things. Like Google Colabs, really approachable. There's lots of online demos where you can interact with these models. Um, and yeah, it's, I think it's quite a fun field to be getting into. Great. So, yeah.
0: Um, coming back to the, to the notebooks, I've heard I, I remember very early on that that you could download someone else's notebook to do some. AI ish thing. So, so there was very early on. Um, you were downloading notebooks. Was one of the ways that you actually had access to this before they were public. Is is that still something where where you actually have someone else's notebook as a thing and you download it and use it like a like a software app almost?
1: Yes. So you can share just natively in the like if you're using something like Curlab, Um and if you're using a local one, it's just a file like any other text mm-hmm. file. Um, and it's really fun. You get these like these lineages. You know, someone writes some code in one notebook. Somebody else copies that and adds a bunch of things. You can make little user interfaces where I hide a bunch of code and instead you just see like a slider and a button. Um, and so then you have these like, especially in the AI art community, you know, Disco Diffusion version eight point one, which is based on this person's notebook from this, which is based on that person's notebook from that, which is based. So everyone's just mixing and sharing. It feels very much like you know, early days of free software or something where just everything's open source, everything's shared and public and everyone's copying and pasting and figuring out how to make it work, um, without
0: being necessarily too technical. Okay. All right. So, um, do you have notebooks to share yourself? Um, sure. I can link to
1: one or two that are like introductory tutorial style things. Um,
0: yeah. Alrighty. That'd be great. We'll put those in the show notes if you send them to us. Um, well, this has really been fantastic, Jonathan. Thank you for your tools, for sharing, taking time to share yeah, with us. thank you so much. And it's, um, um,
1: it's been surreal being on the show that I listen to, and it's also influenced my last month or so. Everything I interact with is like, oh, I wonder how I would describe this on cool tools. or <laughs> Oh, that's a really nice tool. I was making note of that. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it's a, it's, it's been a really it's, fun experience.
0: I appreciate being introduced to the world of notebooks, which I knew very little about, but I think it's a really cool tool and uh, others can run with it. So thank you again for sharing. We appreciate it. This year, our Cool Tools blog will be 20 years old, which means we've been posting something new every day for 20 years. It's only possible because of the very engaged and knowledgeable readers and listeners like yourself. You've kept this place going, and we are very grateful for you. With this idea of 20 years in mind, um, we decided to try an experiment this year, and I'm inviting our guests and listeners to join me on our Cool Tool Show and Tell, which is the program that you're listening to right now. So if you feel you'd make a good guest on this podcast and have four uncommon tools that you'd like to share with us... Um, Please sign up on our form on the website, and we'll see about inviting you. You must be comfortable taking off, talking on a video, and um, you need to have some tools that you can show. Um, we record on, as you know, on Zoom. We do a YouTube version, a visual video version of it, as well as an Audible version. Fill out the form if you're interested, and um, list your full Four cool tools, and we'll see if there's a good fit. The applications aren't guaranteed in any way, um, and we're looking at tools that are new to us and appropriate tools and um, whether the times will work for you. So um, we're really interested in hearing from people all over the world, not just in the U.S., although the tools have to be available online, easily available online. And... um, if you are a long time you kind of know what the definition of our tools are. They're very broad. They can be anything that's handy from something in the kitchen to something used to travel to a workshop to something professional that we may not know about. We're really interested in things that we don't know anything about. So um, this is an open invitation. We'll give it a try. If you think you make a good guest for this podcast, um, fill out the form. There'll be a link somewhere on our website um, and we look forward to, to chatting with you thank you